chapter 2, we have come as far, really, verse 14, um, Holy Spirit poured out, the 120 in the upper room, filled with the Spirit, speaking in tongues, those were known languages of all of these people of different areas that have gathered they make note in their minds these are Galileans because they were considered uneducated. You know, we're hearing them, it says, in our mother tongue, in our own language. So they're astounded. What is, what, what is this? And it says they're speaking about the wondrous works of God. And it says in verse 12 that they were all amazed and in doubt. They didn't know what to think, saying one to another, what meaneth? This, that's the question. What is this? What does this mean? Uh, you know, it's impactful enough. They know there's some meaning attached to it. And that's the question. What does this mean? It says there were others, though, there always are, that are mocking. They're saying, they're, these guys are drunk. You know, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for, the reason I want you to listen, these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. So Peter dispels that immediately. These are devout men, it says, from all over. These are religious Jews that have traveled to come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And the Jews taught that on any of the feasts and on the Sabbath, they wouldn't eat or drink before nine o'clock in the morning. So Peter speaks that immediately, and they all knew what he was talking about. He said, it's only the third hour. What are you guys talking about? You know this is not what's happening. The interesting picture is that he stands up here. Look, here's the same guy seven weeks before this, right? Fifty days before this, who denied Christ three times, who was terrified of the religious people and no doubt that are in this crowd listening to him at this point in time. And the change in his life is that now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We see them in Acts chapter 4, around verse 31. They say, Lord, grant that we might bear testimony to your, child, your holy child Jesus with boldness. Fill us with the Spirit that we might have boldness. And look, the world that we're living in, here, here the religious Jews are hostile. There are mockers in the crowd. The Romans certainly are, are, are you know, ruling Judea with an iron heel. And yet Peter, the, the spiritual realm, the spiritual reality, of course, 40 days with the risen Christ helps as well. But, you know, the spiritual reality is he's filled with the spirit now. And there's another, you know, kingdom that is having a greater effect on his lives, on his life than, than the, the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom that's around them. And I think for you and I, one of the great things in the book of Acts, for me personally, is I need to be reminded continually, there is a kingdom that weighs more than this present world and all the pressures it would put on us from one direction or another. And sometimes I get overwhelmed with it. You know, sometimes, I would say this for your benefit, I get crabby. I make that up. I don't ever, but I know you have a problem with it. You know, just there are some days when I have to take a deep breath and sit back and say, Lord, that's right, Lord. Just remind me. Just touch my heart. Fill me with your spirit. What we're headed towards and what's really happening around us is your hand. All this insanity with the nations, all this insanity with our culture, all of this going on, Lord, you've allowed it and you spoke to us about it before any of it came to pass. And we can see it in your word. Peter now standing up now with boldness. He's not afraid anymore. He stands up he hears the question, what does this mean? There's two questions in this chapter. He takes a long time to answer the, the, answer the first question. It goes on and on. The second question related to his answer of the first question is what must we do to be saved? And that answer is not long. 
It's simple. Repent, he says. So now we get his answer to this religious crowd. What does this mean? What's taking place? What's going on? And he says he stands up again with the eleven. So Matthias is part of the, the apostles at this point. And he lifted up his voice. No doubt this now is in Aramaic. He's, he's going to say what he say in the common language, not speaking in tongues now. He lifts up his voice and he said, now it doesn't use the normal word for said here. It uses a Greek word which actually means to speak forth with unction. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. We, we want to see that because as we go through these verses, take note that the things that he's speaking and the things that he's saying are under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If we're under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, how do we speak to our culture? How do we speak to those who are hostile? How do we speak to those who genuinely have questions? And we get to see Peter doing that here. First sermon in the book of Acts, I think it's wonderful the way it's recorded. So it says he stands up and he says, he speaks forth, doesn't have notes. He not, so he doesn't say, boy, I've been waiting for this to come. I've got a three-point sermon. I've got a five-point sermon. Yeah, I'm going to work the crowd. There's none of that. Look, I study. I have notes. I'm not saying you shouldn't have notes, and I'm not saying you shouldn't work hard if God's called you to teach his word. Camel Morgan uh, said, you know, that a young Bible student should work at it, the scripture, work at it, work at it, when he's done, he should work at it. That was his advice, you know, laboring uh, in the scripture. Uh, there have been others, you know, who have been asked and uh, said, well, my advice to young pastors is teach the word. And when you're done, teach the word. And when you're done with that, teach the word. And if that had been done in America for the last 50 years, we wouldn't be in the present situation that we're in now, So Peter stands up. He's going to open the scripture. He's going to quote Joel. He's going to quote the Psalms. He's going to answer properly. And he says unto them, now speaking forth, and it will begin to bring them under conviction. Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken. The idea of that is, is to lean in, to listen, to obey. Hearken to my words, for, I want you to listen for this reason, for these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. That's why you should listen, because what you think is happening here is not happening. But he says, he says, but this is that. They say, what meaneth this? He says, this is what it means. This is that. He's filled with the Holy Spirit now, which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. I guess I'm relegated to being a dreamer now. My handmaidens, upon my servants, my handmaidens, will I pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So he says, this is what you're seeing. Joel said this was coming. Now, the interesting thing is, he says, this is what's going to happen in the last days. Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. So the last days is from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ. Because this said, this is what Joel said about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say, until the sun is darkened, the moon doesn't give us light, the stars. Are... We're in Revelation, looking at that now. Very important for us to see that what Peter is saying by the Holy Ghost is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he's going to say, which is the promise to you and to your children, as many as are far off. Here we are tonight on the other side of the world. He says, that's going to happen in these last days. And the Holy Spirit considers the last days the age of grace. From the time that Christ rose and ascended until when he returns 
is the last days. They differ from, you know, from other days. They differ certainly from the days before the flood. They differ certainly from the, the, the kingdom of Israel under Moses and the old covenant. He says that the spirit of God would be poured out in the last days. Here we are. Here we are. It shouldn't be something that you and I are afraid to seek the Lord for in our own lives. A fresh filling of his spirit. And boy, do we need it in the mission field he's pushed us into here remarkably. He says, this is that which was spoken. Now, this is that. He doesn't say it's being fulfilled now. He said it's happening now in these last days. So it wasn't fulfilled in that experience, but he says this is what's rolling out and is going to roll out till the time Christ returns. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, turn on the TV, look around, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Now, all flesh doesn't mean every human that's alive. He says sons and daughters, male and female, rich and poor, you know, all caste and, and, and uh, you know, rank and file. He, sa- he says, I will pour out of my spirit on all f- flesh, he says. Now he explains, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And how wonderful if we, we're going to find out Philip's daughters are prophesying here as we go through the letter that tells us in the book of Revelation that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The end of Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So don't let anybody tell you prophecy's passed away because the testimony of Jesus hasn't passed away. He said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. It's because we spend more time concentrating there, probably. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And again, they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke specifically attached to the time period right in front of us at this point in time. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. This is what you're seeing. This is what's taking place. And he says, And it shall come to pass in this era that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever is kind of emphatic. It's kind of all whosoever is the idea. Anybody, anywhere. To call, there's a measure of desperation there. It's not just, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's somebody who actually in their life is calling on the name of the Lord, calling on Jesus. He says, whosoever... Wonderful. Aren't you glad we can get to be part of the whosoevers? Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew, Gentile, to the end of the age. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. And we know they're listening. They're glued to them. They're riveted. Hear these words, he says. Jesus of Nazareth, now look, Nazareth was Hicksville to these religious Jews in Jerusalem. He's not, he's bold. He's not, there's no, he's not trying to make this culturally relevant. He's not trying to say something that would soften them up. You know, this was a Jew. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. By miracles and wonders, he says, and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. Now, I don't know, in the, in the 120, is Nicodemus standing there with them? Certainly him and Joseph of Arimathea have come to faith. Nicodemus is the one who came to him night and said, 
You know, Lord, we know no man can do the things you're doing unless God is with him. He was overwhelmed with the signs and wonders. He says, all you guys know this. You know, this wasn't, Paul is going to say further, this isn't something that was done in a corner. This wasn't hidden. You know, when, when this took place, everybody was on Facebook. Everybody was tweeting and everybody was, you know, this spread like fire. He said, he said, he said he's a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. As you yourselves know, he tells them, him, this one that you know, being delivered, now wonderfully he says this, by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God, have ye taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, very remarkable here. He says, first of all, he's not a victim. That was This was not a terrible accident. He said this happened by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. It's a very specific phrase. Uh, there was a man, 1700s, linguistic genius named Granville Sharps. Uh, he was an abolitionist, he was a musician, he was genius, and he discovered in his study through the Greek New Testament that there were times when words were arranged a specific way, and he said, this is how you notice them, and his name was Granville Sharp, became the Granville Sharp rule. Um, and usually, it, does anybody care? Okay, all right. <clears throat> if there's an article like there is here, the predetermined counsel, then a chi, and foreknowledge. Whenever the phrase begins with a definite article, an article, and then is joined together with an and, that is speaking of the same thing. One of the guys I read said, you know, it's like somebody says to you, go get the lettuce and the tomatoes. Those are two separate things. If somebody says, go get the lettuce and tomatoes, it's more the same thing. You know, it's interesting where it says that there are gifts given to the church. Some became apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and then it says some pastors, and there's no some before the teachers, the structure changes, so there's a Granville Sharps rule there. Those of you who are people who like to dig on this, you can Google Granville Sharps, and there's charts there of all the Granville Sharps phrases in the New Testament. It's really fascinating to look at, obviously for me. Wake up, wake up, come back, you know. <laughs> so there's this Granville. Now, the significant thing to that here, as I look at it, is it makes the predetermined council... That means you work out with wisdom, there's specific things being applied, and foreknowledge, the same thing. God doesn't ever foreknow without responding in a divine and moral way to the things that he foreknows. The only other place in the New Testament you have that phrase is in 1 Peter when he's writing to those that are scattered he says, elect according to the foreknowledge, there it is again, of God the Father. So the only two uses in the New Testament, God's foreknowledge is never stagnant. It's never static. It isn't that he just knows the end from the beginning. In his foreknowing, there is a predetermined counsel, and he responds to what he foreknows, or he wouldn't be moral. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be holy. So he's saying here that Christ was offered by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's why Isaiah 53 could speak all about the crucifixion. That's why Psalm 2 could, 22 could tell all of the details. That's why Abraham goes on Mount Moriah, and the first time in the Bible we have the word love, the first time in the Bible we have worship, the first time in the Bible we have lamb, takes him to Mount Moriah, that's Golgotha, and says, I'm going to teach you something here about a father sacrificing a son, you know. Uh, just remarkable. So here he says, yeah, all of this happened, he said, 
with this man that you all know through signs and miracles, he was delivered by the determining counsel and foreknowledge of God. And he says, ye, him being delivered that way, he doesn't absolve them from their involvement, their guilt, or their responsibility. He says, yeah, God is sovereign. Yes, God did this. He delivered him by his determined counsel foreknowledge. In the process, ye have taken him and by wicked hands have crucified him. They do that through the Romans. And slain. That, yeah, this, is, this was God's plan, but you were part of the process and you yourselves took him. And by wicked hands, you made sure he was put to death. You're guilty. God is sovereign, but you're guilty. Both things are here. Sovereignty of God, human responsibility. Very interesting as he brings it before us here. He says, whom God hath raised up. Now look, this is the central theme of preaching through the book of Acts. You have raised up there in verse 24. Uh, you have raised up in verse 30. You have resurrection in verse 31. You have raised up in verse 32. This is constantly what the apostles in their preaching spoke to the people about was the resurrection. The resurrection. Imagine that. They, they, they knew he was crucified. They saw he's placed in the tomb, and all of a sudden that tomb is empty. All of a sudden he's appearing to them. He's talking with them. They're looking at the nail marks in his hand where the, he was beaten beyond human recognition. It doesn't tell us what he appeared like when they saw him. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the first time we see him, it says we're going to see a lamb with the marks of slaughter upon him. And they spent 40 days with him, talking with him. It's remarkable that Peter, now filled with the Spirit, is addressing those things. He says, whom God, you killed him, but God hath raised him up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. He does something very interesting here in this verse. It says, whom God hath raised up, it says, God loosed the pains. That's a specific word for birth pains. Having loosed the birth pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it, of death. So it's, it's in the word picture here, there's a struggle. You know, Christ dies physically on the cross. I believe he died eternally before that in the three hours of darkness. And it says here, but it was impossible for death to hold him. The pains of death had to bring forth this Christ again. It was almost like somebody bringing forth a child. And there's a, there's a there, you know, death itself, you know, was, was in a situation it was never in before. He said it was impossible for death to hold him because look, you know, he's going to say, right, my Holy One didn't see corruption in the tomb for three days. I think about that. What normally happens to a human body in three days? We saw what happened to Lazarus in four days. He stunketh. <laughs> Third day, it says that his physical frame didn't see corruption because he was spotless. He was out without blemish. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. He, there were things that were not in his nature of the fall that are in our nature. And some day, three days later, there's no corruption. It was impossible for that to happen, I said, because of who he was. And then he rose up and he showed us what the new model is going to be like. I'm getting more excited as time goes on. At 70, I'm more excited about the new model than I was at 30. He says, God hath raised him up having loosed the pains, the birth pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Then he goes to David, because they, they all respect David so much, obviously, for, it was impossible for death to hold him, for David speaketh concerning him. This was part of the predetermined counsel of foreknowledge of God. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. David said, he's my advocate. He's there at my right hand. 
Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. He's quoting Psalm 16. Where David is speaking, you know, he said, At thy right hand are pleasures evermore. I'll be satisfied when I wake in thy likeness. David had clear idea of these things. He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Because of that, David says, I shall not be moved. He's, he's my advocate. There's a stability in this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices, and my flesh shall also rest in hope. My flesh shall rest in hope, he says. The reason for thou wilt not leave my soul, now it's in Sheol, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. I have this hope. And the, and the hope he had, he, it doesn't mean he's going to rest in hope when he dies. He's resting in it. God's at his right hand. He sees something. And what he sees is you will not abandon, literally leave is abandon. You're not going to cast me off and abandon my soul to hell. Now, his flesh did see corruption. Peter's going to say, that, hey, David's dead. He's rotten physically. But David said, you're not going to abandon my soul to Sheol is the unseen realm. It can mean just the grave. It can mean just the unseen realm. Quite often it is related to the place where the wicked go in the Old Testament. It is broader than Hades in the New Testament. Hades is the best word to translate it in the New Testament. But there's, but it's almost like there's more here. So David says, I, I, I'm living and, and I'm, I'm resting in my life, as you and I should be. And he said, the reason I can find rest in my life is because I realize the Lord is always at my right hand. He's my advocate. He's never going to let me down. And I know when I breathe my last, he's not going to abandon my soul to the, to the realm of the dead. That's not what's going to happen. David said he was going to, you know, at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. David believed. David, when the, when the baby died, David said, well, you know, He's not going to come to me anymore, but I'm going to go one day and be with him. And he knew that babe was at the right hand of the Lord. So David says, so I'm living. You know, look, rest. That's a, a premium in this world. People drink alcohol to try to find rest. People pursue relationships to try to find rest. People look on social media to find rest, which is the most aggravating place in the world where you get ulcers. You know, people abuse things to find rest. There's no rest without Jesus Christ. David says, and, and look, David was not an angel, but he, he said, Lord, I, I've learned you're at my right hand. You're my advocate. And my soul, I, I, I'm at rest. Because I know when I do die, you're not going to abandon my soul to shield to the unseen realm. So I can rest. I can live now. You and I can live now because we know when we close our eyes in this world, we're going to open them up in the next world. You and I know that one breath on the other side of our last breath here, we're going to be in glory. We're going to be with the Lord Jesus. We're going to see loved ones. We're going to have reunions. You know, there's something about that. And look, people, I don't care if people think I'm crazy. Do you care? Does that bother you? People think you're nuts. This guy's wacko. He believes in heaven and all this stuff. What do you believe in? The UN? You know, you got more faith than I do. You know, I got something that's genuine. I got something that's real. My, and, and it's in, through the new birth, it's become real to me. And this world's full of difficulty and pain. People are trying to find rest. The rest that we have, you and I, is on the other side of this. We're not abandoned. We're not abandoned. We're not cast off into the realm of the dead. Isn't that wonderful? 
I wonder if this, this Wednesday night study, we're all going to be sitting together on the other side. Oh, yeah, we talked about this. This is really cool, isn't it? Right? Pastor Joe, you look way better at 30 than you did at 70, you know, the other side. He says, for, he's having this hope, this rest, for thou will not abandon my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The religious Jews knew that part of the verse spoke of the Messiah, and they believed that, and they affirmed that. He says, thou hast shown me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy, and so forth. That's why he could rest. That's why he had hope. And now Peter takes that verse and he applies it to Christ here. He says, David speaketh concerning him, the Messiah, for I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore, my heart rejoices and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. He will live that way. Because thou wilt not abandon, it's our word in the Greek too, my soul in hell, Hades here, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One, Jesus, you won't suffer the Holy One to see corruption, the body rotting from the grave. Thou hast made known to me, the rest of Psalm 16, the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy, with thy countenance, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. This guy is dead and gone. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's going he's gonna to say, look, David couldn't be speaking of himself because he is dead. He saw corruption. He's dead and buried. His, his sepulcher is with us. Isn't that interesting? In Jerusalem... Josephus tells us John uh, Hyrcanus, part of the, the, the apocryphal books, the Maccabees, that at one time he wrote that David's tomb had been raided. And then there's another record mentioned, I believe, by Josephus, that Herod himself tried to raid David's tomb and was driven away by a supernatural force. So it seems somewhere in the old city there's a tomb with a, sh with a sword and a shield and a crown and a sling that's going to come back into action pretty soon and during the millennium. We'll be there Sunday, you know. So uh, he, he says, whose, whose sepulcher is with us unto this day. Really interesting if you guys love this stuff. Go to Biblical Archaeological Review and Google David's sepulcher and they tell you like in the 1600s or something, these guys who found it, and they were tomb raiders. They were going to get down, and they were driven out by a wind and a sound. They came out terrified, you know. I don't know if that's true, but it's make a great movie. <laughs> there he says, Therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ the Messiah, to sit on his throne. David knew this, you know, you're not going to abandon my soul to hell, and you're not going to suffer your Holy One to see corruption. David said he knew when he passed out of this world that God had made him a promise that one day he was going to raise up Christ to sit on his throne. And seeing this before, speak of the resurrection of Christ, that that's what he was talking about that his soul was not left in hell. And scholars say here, is that David or is that, well, in the psalm, he says, thou will not abandon my soul to hell, neither his flesh did see corruption, speaking of the resurrection of Christ. The, the point of resurrection is it's a resurrection of the flesh. So we know there this seed that David knew was going to sit on his throne this Christ experienced the resurrection because the promise was his flesh would not see corruption. It's interesting, Paul, in Acts 13, when he quotes this verse, um, 
He says, Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. So Paul doesn't quote the first half of the verse like Peter does here, which causes some confusion. You know, was it Jesus saying, Thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, to Sheol? It's impossible to me. It's David still, that's his part of the psalm. And you won't suffer your holy one to see corruption. Look. There are some, John Calvin taught that Jesus descended and suffered in hell for three days before the resurrection. Uh, Some quote, you know, the Apostles' Creed, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, descended into hell, and rose again on the third day. Only that didn't happen until the fifth century. The original Apostles' Creed said crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried, rose again on the third day. Said nothing about descending into hell. If Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, to tell us I paid in full, he didn't need to go anywhere for three and suffer for three more days. If Jesus on the cross said to the thief, today you will be, be with me in paradise, he wasn't talking about somewhere down. If Jesus on the cross said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he wasn't talking about going down somewhere. So then what they do is they they go through mental gymnastics and they try to say, well, Hades had two compartments. There was an upper compartment where the righteous dead went, and there was a lower compartment where the bad guys went. And, uh, you know, Jesus went and rescued the guys out of the upper compartment. You really got to torture the text to get some of this stuff out of it. Jesus, when he tells us about Lazarus, and, and uh, the rich man, it says that the rich man was in Hades. It says he lifted up his eyes and saw Lazarus up and afar off with a great gulf fixed between them that no man could cross. There wasn't two compartments down. Lazarus was up and afar off. Jesus said, you know, an evil and adulterous generations seek after a sign, but no sign shall be given to that generation but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about the tomb and the resurrection. What sign would it be to an evil and adulterous generation if he descended somewhere invisible where nobody could see him? That's not a sign to anybody. He was talking about coming out of the tomb. So this whole idea of two compartments in Hades is not biblical. It it came with church tradition as time went on. Uh, We know that it tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Christ went and preached to the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah. They tried to pull the same thing there. It's not evangelical. He didn't preach the gospel. He made a proclamation to the spirit there. It's it's pneuma. It's not suki. It's not souls. Some, some try to say, well, he went and he preached to the people that were disobedient before the flood. Like he only cared about them? What about the rest of humanity? No, he went and he preached to the fallen angels, the spirits that were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. And I don't believe he'd have done that until after the resurrection, because there was no victory till then. It was he, If he descended in his resurrected form and snatched the keys of hell and death, and he made a proclamation to those spirits that tried to stop him from coming, then you have something there. The context of Peter never makes sense to anybody. But I believe what is said there. Then, you know, people are going to go, they go to... Do you mind me doing all this? That you know, people go to Ephesians chapter four and say, "Well, no, it says he led you know the captives captive." It doesn't say that. It says he led captivity captive, not captives. He led hell and death itself captive. Well, it says, well, it says he descended. Who is this that ascended? But he that descended first into the lower parts of the earth. Well, Isaiah says, Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, you forests, and every tree. He, he talks about the heaven, and he talks about the earth. Who is he that ascended? He that first descended into our, he came into our world. 
And through his work on the cross, he led captivity itself captive. There's no way that he would lead a certain group of people and leave everybody else. There's no way that David's soul was abandoned there. It was at the right hand of the Father were their pleasures evermore. So the text tells us here that David died in hope because he understood that his soul was not going to be abandoned to Sheol, to the realm of the dead, to the unseen realm. And he said, neither will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. David understood he would be put to death, but he understood the resurrection would come because he understood God had made him a promise that his seed would sit upon his throne. So he puts this out in front of us. It's, it's so wonderful to read it and to see the way it's written out here. It says, this Jesus, verse 32, hath God here is again, raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now there's 120 witnesses standing there. There were over 500 that saw him. We don't know where the rest of them are, or the other 380, but there's 120 of them here. Is Nicodemus there? Is Joseph of Arimathea there? You know, is uh, is blind Bartimaeus there? We know the apostles are there. How many people are there that that were affected by his life and his healing and his ministry? Just think how remarkable this scene, this 120, must be standing in front of this crowd. He, he says, he says, this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which thou now see and hear. He said, so this experience that Joel talked about, what you're seeing and hearing, you're asking, what does this mean? It means that Jesus has reached the throne of the Father in his ascension. And the reason we know that is because he promised us before he left the promise of the Father that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And he said, here we are experiencing it. It tells us that he's at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, what you see and hear is now shed forth. This is what the experience you're having. It's interesting, Tozier, talking about this verse, he said, you know, in the church today, he said, there's a lot heard that which you hear. He said, but there's little seen. He said, in this New Testament church, things were heard and seen. They professed it and they lived it out, you know. Tozer said, there's little in the church today that's heard and seen. Most, most of what's in the church today is heard. He said, Tozer had a way of stabbing you with a knife uh, and making you feel good about it till you realize what he did. He says, David is not ascended into the heavens, that he saith of himself, he said, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, goes to Psalm 10, the most quoted Psalm in the New Testament, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, he's got them on the hook, both Lord and Christ. So Jesus, his earthly name, Yeshua, Lord, his divine title, Christ, Messiah, uh, his mission. You know, he puts all of that together here in a very remarkable way. And he said, know this, therefore let all the house of Israel Know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus. He's, he told them the one you've crucified, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. If you notice this, look, as we're going through this, this is not seeker friendly. This is not the Holy Spirit saying, Peter, slow down a little. Consider the culture. You need, you're going to blow people out. No, this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. And it's going to tell us right after this, their hearts were picked, pricked. They were pierced, the idea is. They're listening to this old fisherman who was afraid of them two months before this. He's not speaking anything 
you know, astounding as it were, but what he's saying is true. He's using the scripture, and it's under the power of the Holy Spirit, and it brings people's hearts under conviction to the point where it says it, it pierced their hearts. Look, you and I, when we share with friends, we should share the scripture. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing down to the dividing of the soul and the spirit. It's able to separate that which is soulish from that which is spiritual. And it's, it's, it's able to, to touch people's lives. And you sow it in people's lives, even if it gets stuck in their memory. I don't know how many people we have come back years later and say, we can't believe you said that to us, and we could never get it off our mind. And we're out getting stoned one night, and we realize, what are we doing? You know, just the word of God doesn't return void. Paul says the word of God is not bound. And he tells us that it is, you know, that it accomplishes, that it is effectual, he says, in your lives, uh, because you received it as the word of God. So for you and I, what a great picture. Here's Peter, fisherman, no seminary degree. Didn't, you know, sit around and write out a five-point sermon. Was impromptu. Of course, he was pushed to the place by the Holy Spirit terrified weeks before, now with boldness he's standing up, and he's giving testimony to his Savior, whom he learned to love, whom he walked, stepped out of the boat and walked on the water to. The one he had denied and heard the rooster crow, but then came to him on resurrection morning and met with him and spoke to him and restored him. So the rest of the, the group now accepts his standing up and doing this. He says, now then, understanding, seeing this whole picture here, he says, now then, now, when they, uh, Luke tells them, I'm sorry, now when they heard this, look what it says, they were pricked in their hearts. The idea is they were pierced. That's the word. It's the only time that word's used in all the New Testament. And it talks about ramming a sword. They were pierced. This is by the Holy Spirit. It's not Peter's ingenuity. It's not because he studied the Old Testament so well. It's not because he was a master of Old Testament texts. It says that Jesus, when he resurrected, sat with them, and he opened the Scripture to them so they would understand what it meant. And then, of course, they're filled with the Spirit here. All of that, he told them, don't go anywhere. You wait until you're filled. All of that, you know, kindling has now been, you know, set ablaze was insignificant without the Holy Spirit and would have been ineffective. Here's this crowd. They're pierced in their hearts because what he's saying and said unto Peter, look, the, the, with the, and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren. Isn't that interesting? They're no longer Hicks or Galileans. Now they're under conviction. It's men and brethren. They're understanding these guys because they're going to say it further in the book of Acts. They took note that they had been with Jesus. They were unlearned and ignorant men, but they took note they had been with Jesus. Of course, what they were completely wrong with there, they hadn't been with Jesus. They were still with Jesus. But he says here, he says, men and brethren. They're calling these Galileans now brethren. Now here's the second question. What shall we do? The first question is, what does this mean? Peter's taking verse after verse after verse after verse to tell him what it means. Now the second question comes, what do we do? You know, they're overwhelmed. Their hearts are pierced. What do we do? Look, he, this is what Peter says. Then Peter said unto them, repent. Great word. And be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, the reason for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So here's Peter. He says, look, repent. This, there's two forms of metanoia. This is not the one that means to be sorrowful, to feel bad. This, the idea here is to change your direction to change your life. You've been going away from this. You need to come to this now. Repent. Metanoia, change the mind. Look, John the Baptist, when he preached, Jesus said, among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John. Among those born of women, Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Abraham, you know, you go through all the prophets. Among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John. 
the prophets prophesied until John. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. What set him aside from all the prophets was he was the one that could point his finger and say, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And all the other prophets had dreamed of doing that. But his message was repent. His message was repent. That was his message to the religious people, to the Roman soldiers, to the Jews. And people were flocking to hear him. The Holy Spirit, it tells us, was upon his life. He had no social media, no TV, none of that stuff. And they're coming down from the mountains of Judea. They're going down this muddy little dirty river, the Jordan River. You saw it, it would blow your mind. And they're going in, and he's baptizing them. He's got no media. He's got no promotion. He's eating grasshoppers and, and honey. You know, he's got legs and wings stuck in his beard. You can imagine the first time he was out there preaching, two or three guys working down there. Look at that guy, that hippie. He's off the end. They went and got friends. you got to hear this guy. He's, and slowly that crowd grows to thousands thousands and it's the Holy Spirit and his message is this repent change your mind God's saying come back to me please listen to this this is greater than any message that Abraham or Jeremiah or Pharaoh or Alexander the Great this is the, the crux the center of human history and it's the greatest voice that's ever been raised. And that voice is calling for repentance. God's saying, change your mind. Turn around, come back to me. And then John, of course, will be able to finish that. Behold the Lamb of God, which makes it complete, that takes away the sin of the world. Here, Peter, under unction of the same spirit, what do we do? Okay, you're blowing our minds. We heard this. Our hearts are breaking. We, we understand. We crucified the Messiah. What do we do? And he says, repent. Repent. That's the place we need to come to. Everybody in this room is you realize, I crucified. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It was me. I did it. He died there for me. Not for the Jews. Not for the Romans. I put him on the cross. And somewhere in the middle of that, as their hearts are broken, there comes that repentance, change of mind. This is, you know, this is what I've been looking for. Lord, I'm making a U-turn. My life has been going away from you. I'm coming to you now. And he says here, that's what you need to do. Change the mind. Change your direction. Change your view. Metanoia, repentance. Peter said to him to repent. And then he says, be baptized, every one of you. This is not baptismal regeneration. People teach that. That's not what this is here. Um, you know, you had believers in um, chapter 19 that were baptized but not baptized correctly. Yet as you go through, you have people come to faith and then baptized. After that, you have Paul, who's a believer for, today, for days, at least three days, and Ananias baptizes him. You have Paul saying in 1 Corinthians, I thank God I baptized none of you but the household of Stephanos. Now, Paul's the most zealous evangelist that ever lived. If baptism saved, Paul would never say, I thank God I baptized none of you. Baptism doesn't save. But for these Jews, there was no altar call. There was no Billy Graham. They, they had the mikvahs. They, had, you know, they were baptized. What they did in this situation is they associated publicly with Jesus the Messiah. And before friends and relatives, they were baptized. They repented. And then they entered into his death and resurrection. Like the baptism we had Saturday. Publicly it was their stand. For their friends. For their relatives. For their religious leaders. They entered in. So he said repent and be baptized. He said and the thief on the cross didn't go to hell. Because he wasn't baptized. Jesus said this day you'll be with me in paradise. You know, you, you, but but. Here it says this is what you should do. I believe everybody here is a born-again Christian should get baptized at some point. I got saved, was saved for a while, and uh, ran into these kind of old, crusty guys that had worked with Catherine Kuhlman um, in the mountains in Pennsylvania and wanted to get baptized. It was October, and they took me down to this stream and I knew it was bad because they built this big fire before they baptized me next to the stream. And they took me in there, and that was life-changing. I did <laughs> die and come up again. That was so cold. It was ridiculous. But I, I was glad I did it the next day. Right while it was happening, 
I wasn't sure, but. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, for is because of. The word ice here is it's in the, 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 the connotation is because of. The reason you should do that is because of the remission of sins. The idea is because your sins have been sent away. And because of that, you make this stand. You know, you repent, and then you're baptized because of the remission, the sending away of your sins. It tells us Psalm 103, verse 12, you know, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. You and I know the truth of that as Christians. And it says, for the remission of sins, it doesn't cause the remission of sins. It is because of the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Guys, gift, okay? You ain't going to earn it. You can't work for it. The gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise, Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 4 of Acts, wait for the promise, you've heard of me, for the promise is unto you and unto your children, little Pete and little James and little John, unto you, unto your children, and to all that are afar off, that's us, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, by the way, he doesn't go through this whole thing telling them the only way they can be saved is by turning to Jesus and then tell them to save themselves. Um, that's not what it says there. It says, it says it's a passive form there. And, and the idea is be saved is what the Greek reads. It doesn't say save yourselves. You know, sometimes we look at that. And King James may have translated save, be saved, y'all, King James. But the idea is be saved. It's passive. You don't do it. It's what happens to you. Be saved from this. Isn't it interesting here? This untoward generation. It means warped. It's most often translated crooked in the New Testament, this untoward. It's scolios. You know what scoliosis is? You know, it's scolios. It means to be crooked or to be twisted. He says, be saved from this crooked, twisted generation. I, I like the King James word there, untoward, because what the Bible tells us is we need to be toward, not untoward. That's the, that was our unsaved life. We were untoward Jesus. Now we're supposed to be living our lives toward Jesus. The world that we're living in is untoward Jesus. It's untoward him. You and I, it tells repentance, one of the things it looks like is now we're to be living toward him, for him, with him, in him. Now, it's interesting here because it says what happens is, if you look at verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day they were added to the church about 3,000 people. That ain't bad for your first sermon with no notes. Right? 3,000 people get saved. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and he says here, then they gladly received. The interesting word there is they welcomed. That's the, the real true meaning of that word received. They received the word of God. They welcomed it. That's how they received it. They gladly heard it. They took it to their hearts. They welcomed it. What is this strange experience? What's going on? How is it that we hear all these Galileans through the wondrous works of God in our own mother tongues? What in the world is going on here? And some of them said, nah, these guys must be drunk. Peter says, no, that's not what's going on. They're not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men will dream dreams. Upon your handmaidens and servants and handmaids, I'm going to pour out of my spirit. And that will happen till the sun goes dark, till the moon turns to blood, till the stars fall out of heaven. Those are the days we're living in right here. 
So what it means to you and I tonight is there is a promise that is still in effect for you and I in regards to receiving a fullness of the Spirit. That, as Oswald Chambers says, you do that by faith, just like you got saved by faith. You received his forgiveness by faith. You didn't work for it. And you receive his Spirit the same way, by faith. You can say, well, I received the Spirit years ago. So did I. But a Spirit-filled Christian is not a title. It's a condition. You and I know too many people that are jabbering in tongues and living in sin. The promise, it says, is to you, your children, and as many as are afar off. And I think Peter was looking with his binoculars and saw us sitting here at Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia in 2021. It's to you all as well, this promise, to you guys. So I'll have the musicians come. I I encourage you to welcome these things. So listen, look, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as Savior, what is the holdup? What is the holdup? It says here, David said, I lived with rest. You're not going to find rest in this world. And he said, I live with rest because I realize on the other side of my last breath, I'm not going to be abandoned there. God's not casting me off. I'm going to be at his right hand where there are pleasures evermore. And that's going to happen because his Holy One will not see corruption. God is going to raise him up. I know because he promised me somebody would sit on my throne under my own lineage. And so he's he's raised up Christ. And he goes through this process saying these remarkable things to us. And he said, but you guys did this. You took the Holy One. You crucified him. And and they're cut to the heart. I crucified him. That's what I realized when I got saved. His presence was so real to me. And I felt like there was wave after wave of unbearable love and grace that was washing over me. I could hardly breathe. There was a person standing there. And I realized I had sinned against him. I had crucified him. So if you don't know Christ tonight, please, after the service, get up here. We want to pray with you, give you an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. As believers, let's stand. Let's pray. Let's ask God for this promise to be real in our lives, in our congregation here at Calvary Philly, that he would pour out of his spirit. In the last days, here we are, upon all flesh, when all of these things, you know, biblically and prophetically are going on around us, we're the, we're the, we're the ones that are right in, you know, right in the lane here where we need to be. Amen? So let's bow our hearts. Let's pray. I encourage you to pray for yourself. Pray for the person next to you. And uh, after we pray, then Brian's going to lead us, and let's lift our voices and our hearts to the Lord. Lord, I know you've overheard And we look to you in these things, Lord. We can't imagine, Lord, what it would have been like standing there, that first sermon ever preached, that first day to see the old salty fishermen filled with your spirit, the truth of your love and of your sacrifice pouring forth from his lips, the ache in the human heart as your Holy Spirit digs his way into the deepest part of our being. Lord, we pray for any here this evening that are not saved, that have never come to you, that are tired of religious games and emptiness. Lord, tonight after the the service, you would bring them forward so we could pray with them and talk with them and give them a copy of Scripture. Lord, for the rest of us, your sons and daughters, Lord, we, I want, we want, Lord, to be more filled with the Spirit when we leave than when we came. We want to be more filled with your spirit next week than we were this week and next month than we were this month. We want there to be an ever-deepening and growing thirst, Lord, in our hearts for more and more reality. Everything that tempts us and rubs against us and wears us out is taking on greater and greater reality. You said when wickedness comes like a flood, you would lift up a standard. Lord, fill us afresh with your spirit. Let us be your messengers like this old fisherman, not because of our diplomas, not because of our PhDs or demons. Lord, let us be your messengers because your spirit finds free access to our hearts and our lips and our hands. Lord, let us not be thinking about how much of your spirit 
that we have, but let us be thinking about how much of us your spirit has. And let us yield to greater and greater degrees. Lord, fill us now. Lord, you said if two or three of us agree as touching anything, we could have those petitions, Lord. We believe it's your will. You told us to be filled with the Spirit. You said how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? So you hear every asking heart here in this instant, Lord, right now. Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. Six million people in the greater Delaware Valley. And no doubt the majority of those lost on their way to hell. Light us up, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Ignite us, Lord. Let our actions and our words, Lord, have your hand upon them. We don't want to undertake this, Lord, at all. In our own strength. It'll it'll turn out to be nothing, Lord. But if you fill us with your spirit, Lord, we know that all men will know your disciples by the love we have one for another. We know this place, Lord, would be an oasis for the broken and thirsty, a hospital, Lord, for those who need care. Lord, it would be a place, you put the solitary in flocks. We come here and we rejoice, Lord, in the family you've placed us in and the loved ones that surround us as we gather, Lord. So, Lord... Give us a greater measure, Lord. Fill us afresh with your spirit. Take all of that, Lord, and set it ablaze in a new way, Lord, in our hearts. Let your person and your presence be more real to each one of us, Lord Jesus, than you've ever been, Lord. Get us when we're alone, Lord, tonight before we go to bed. Or in the morning, if we sit alone with the scripture or the cup of coffee, Lord, blow our minds, Lord. Stagger us, Lord. Bow our hearts, Lord, our knees, wet our eyes, Lord. You are our Lord and our Savior, Lord Jesus. We look to you, Lord. We pray in your name, Lord, let this song rise before you as a sweet savor. Amen.